The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Uh, a very warm welcome to Scorebox. These are your headlines. Asian equities hitting a two-week high after the U.S. 10-year Treasury yield posts its largest daily drop since mid-July, with the Fed officials ramping up dovish comments ahead of inflation data. From doves to hawks, the ECB Governing Council member Robert Halsman tells CNBC that additional shocks to the economy could warrant one or two more interest rate increases. We will be discussing the central bank debate, growth, inflation, and much, much more. Do not miss our lineup of interviews throughout the morning here at the IMF meetings in Marrakesh. Israeli forces ready a ground offensive on Gaza, whilst the combined death toll now tops 2,100. U.S. President Biden condemns the Hamas attack, pledging steadfast support for Israel. This is an act of sheer evil. We stand with Israel. We will make sure Israel has what it needs to take care of its citizens, defend itself, and respond to this attack. In corporate news, Samsung Electronics scores a beat as the chip giant's profit forecast tops expectations, despite dipping nearly 80% in the third quarter. Going out of style, sales growth slows at luxury fashion house LVMH, missing analyst expectations as higher inflation and rising rates eat into consumer purchasing power. Very good morning to you. How are you? Good morning. Very well, thank you. Good, good, good. Um, I want to talk about fool's games. There's a lot of fool's games out there, and we've all played them professionally and, dare I say it, sportingly in our lives as well. And I can't help thinking it's a fool's game to follow every single word we're getting from various Fed officials at the moment. Quite frankly, one minute we're hearing hawkish rhetoric, next minute we're hearing dovish rhetoric. And isn't the point here that none of them seem to know any better than you and I, despite the legendary vast amount of data points that they have at their disposable, disposal, whether uh, we are going to have more rates or not, i.e. we don't know because we are data-driven. We are told we're data-driven, yet at the same time, we've got Bostic, Kashkari, Daily, within the last 12 hours or so, all coming up with their views, and that leading to this huge decline that we saw uh, in yields on the 10-year and across the US Treasury curve. I, I just wonder why they feel the need to speak on a daily basis uh, and just lead the market on a merry dance. You say data-dependent, but I think we're now morphing into market-dependent, aren't we? Because the Fed this week has been talking about those long-term rates that we've been watching on the markets. The fact that we've escalated on that US 10-year Treasury yield, but then, of course, now we've come back around some of the safe haven fears around the geopolitics. The message was if we stay at these higher rates, it could have a, a tightening impact on the economy doing some of the work for the Fed to bring inflation lower. But now what we've seen, very significant unwind on that longer end of the curve over the course of this week. So are we now watching the market? If the market reacts, instead of pull down on those yields, does it mean we don't have the market doing some of the work for the Fed? Wow, that, that is exactly the tautology and, and the convoluted, dare I say it, fool's game that we're getting ourselves into. Right. So the yields are doing the Fed's work, but then the Fed 
speaks, uh, all these members speak randomly and then send the yields down, which means that the Fed's work won't be done by the market and as such they have to keep rates higher for longer and potentially high rates. You can see the tautology and the confusing who's leading here. Is it, you know, the dog or the dog's tail? And, and who's, it's like, it's like when my Labrador goes round in a circle trying to chase his tail or your, your, your smaller dog, I forget which one it is. This doesn't go in circles, it's just fluffy, but, but what you've but, but, got but, 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 is but, but, I, I, I don't want to swear on it, it's, it's a small dog. But, but, but the point is, it's like, well, it, it, you're, you're so right. If the, if the yield is supposed to be doing the work for the Fed, but then the Fed speak, then sends the yields lower, then the yield won't be doing the job for the Fed, and as such, the Fed has to kind of take more affirmative action. It's just pointless. The question is, at what level do you see some of that tightening get unwound? Because we've had 20-plus basis point move over the course of this week because, again, some of the Fed speak, but also the safe haven moves that you had on markets because of the geopolitics and what's been playing out in the Middle East. So what is the lower range? When do we see that t tightening on markets start to fade out as a result? I'm glad you and I are equally confused. OK, so what we'll do is I'll tell you what the Fed officials said, then Karen will tell you how the market tried to interpret this. Fed officials are continuing to weigh in on the US economy. Yeah, it's continuing. Uh, Atlanta Fed President Rafael Bostic issuing a dovish note on Tuesday. He does not expect the Fed will need uh, to hike rates anymore. A warning that a lot of the fallout from higher rates is yet to materialise. The Minneapolis Fed President Neil Kashkari backed the odds of a soft landing, but stressed that it's too soon to declare victory on inflation. He said more hikes may not be needed, as higher long-term yields may do some of the work for us. That's exactly the point Karen was making. And the San Francisco Fed President Mary Daly also weighed in on the impact of higher yields, saying the Fed may not now need to do as much. Uh, she also said the risks, I'm confused, uh, the risks are roughly balanced between over-tightening and under-tightening. Uh, we'll, we'll have various guests on the show today, just see if they've got any clue of what's going on. But in the meantime, the market's liked what it saw, Karen. Yeah, let's take a look at the overall equity market picture. You can see a bounce for the third straight session on the major boards for the Dow, the S&P, the Nasdaq closing in the green. Firmer territory, modestly firmer in terms of what you've got on uh, some of the, the gains, about half of a percent on the S&P 500. A little bit more on the Nasdaq. So some of those tech names back in play. In terms of treasuries, let's just take stock of where we are because we have had declines across the board. On that 10-year yield, you can see 4.64%. So we've dropped well and truly off that 4.8 plus percent mark as we were closing in on 5% earlier in the month. So effectively the lowest level since late September on the 10-year. On the shorter end, this is the lowest level since the beginning of September as we just slip below that 5% handle. So there's been movement, as you can see, across the board. And the implications for the dollar trade as well. Let's just flip, switch over those boards and you can see the impact on the dollar. Sterling perched higher this morning, so cable just shy of the 123 handle, certainly gaining some territory. 106.02 on euro dollar as we hold a fairly flat in the morning session. Dollar weakening versus a safe haven Japanese yen, but on the back foot versus yuan. So it is a moment where you are seeing another drop in dollar trade to this point. To the Asian markets, and as we move throughout the part of this part of the session, you can see we've got a very strong trade for the Hong Kong markets, a bounce of 280-plus points, or 1.6%, leading the charge across the region. Japanese stocks, again, firmer yesterday, reaching for more territory today, 7 tenths plus on that trade. Modest gains out of the Shanghai market, but it has been somewhat stubborn versus the other markets this week. A little bit soggy still 
sellers, investors weigh up the property story, the repayment by some of the developers, but also that slow progress on the ground economically. The Australian market's up six tenths of a percent, but it is firmly green signals across the board, Steve. Well, uh, hopefully to give us a bit of clarity, the, the huge meetings in Marrakesh with global central bankers and policymakers debating the health of the global economy. This is at the IMF World Bank meetings. Jumana uh, and Sylvia, uh, um, I'm sure you two have got far more clarity on what's going on and affirmative action from policymakers than I have. I, that, that wouldn't be hard. Good morning to you both. <laughs> Morning. Well, we're trying to piece it together just like you and Karen are, but it was fascinating to hear your discussion because this is exactly the type of discussion that is taking place within the IMF. And there are so many different policymakers around, lots of central bankers here too. We've spoken to a couple of them. And uh, the messaging, I would say, depends on who you're speaking to. And I thought it was one of the interesting things that came out from the IMF is that they think that while central bankers have done a good job so far, their words, in, in controlling inflation, uh, one of the main takeaways is likely that rates are, higher rates are going to be with us for longer and not all central banks have actually completed or been successful in that fight against inflation. But I want to draw it back to some of the conversations Sylvia and myself have been having, uh, specifically starting with Europe, always an interesting one to watch. And let's not forget that uh, the ECB, just at their last meeting, raised interest rates by 25 basis points. But they inserted some new language suggesting that rates were sufficiently restrictive uh, to, in, in line to bring inflation back to, to target. Uh, and many people read that as the ECB getting towards the end of their hiking cycle, that uh, they had eked out one more rate hike, but that this was going to be it as far as the ECB were concerned. But not everyone in the committee is on the same page. And I had the chance to speak with Robert Holzman, who's the governor of the Austrian Central Bank. And the first question I asked him is, is the market right as interpreting this last 25 basis point hike as the final hike in this rate hiking cycle? But I think what we wanted to express it, that if everything goes well, this may happen. But, and the thing this also was behind it, if additional shocks come, and if the information we have proves to be incorrect, we may have to hike another time or perhaps two times. And so, and that's also a message given to the market, don't start to talk about when will the first decrease. We're still in a period in which we don't know how long it will take to come to the inflation we want to have and whether we have to hike more. But we are beginning to see a sequential monthly decline in core inflation numbers. Why would you still say that there's an upside risk to inflation? Well, I'm sure if you look around the world we have just seen in recent days, uh, the uncertainty was high and through and due to the recent events will further increase. And what we also know is that even as we have, uh, uh, we have uh, disturbances, oil prices are likely to go up again and there may be other disturbances. So yes, if it comes down as it does, sir, we're on the good path. But we also know from research done by the MF and published recently, comparing about 100 uh, stories about inflation, if you're not careful, if you think you have it, then it becomes dangerous because then inflation may re-rise again. So you just brought up oil. I'm curious to see how you're thinking about the impact of higher oil prices because there's a view out there that it could be perceived to be a demand shock, so that is not a good thing for the European economy, but equally a supply shock because it means that uh, prices are going to start moving higher. How does the ECB read the impact of higher oil prices? Well, 
I can't speak for the whole ECV, I can speak for myself, is all prices always have the supply and demand of shock elements there. But what we know is that the oil price is a major signal for the whole energy market. So if and as oil prices were to be increased by a substantial amount, this would scatter through the whole uh, energy system and will create something which may be another shock to the price system. So the Austrian central banker and member of the ECB board, of course, and it was interesting to hear from him at a time when the IMF has actually turned more negative on the growth outlook for the Eurozone. I would say, though, they will be interesting in the coming days to see how these dynamics in the Middle East will play out when it comes to the oil market. Because we heard yesterday, for instance, from the French central bank governor also suggesting that they're vigilant when it comes to oil prices because that could actually have an impact on the monetary policy. But Jomana, you also spoke to yeah. another uh, central bank governor. Tell yeah, us about I just, that. I would just say on the oil impact as well, it's quite interesting what, what Holzman was saying because you do get the supply effect, but also yeah. uh, let's not forget that you know, for many of these European countries, they're actually oil importing countries, which means there's going to be a demand shock, which is not good for growth as well, which sort of raises that risk of a prolonged recession, which means that the ECB, again, fall into this potential trap of over-tightening. So it's not so clear-cut when it comes to the ECB. And I think no. that is one of the questions that we are going to be raising. And we're going to be speaking to some of the more dovish members of the committee yes. later on today. We'll be speaking with the likes of Centeno. So that's something to watch out for. But more generally speaking, I would say, you know, if you look back of what central banks have been doing over the last couple of years, there has been an aggressive tightening of monetary policy. And sometimes it's, it's just good to look back and evaluate how far we've come. So one of the gentlemen that I spoke to is the Reserve Bank of South Africa governor, Lesetia Kenyahu. Um, and I asked him whether his own central bank is finished with the hiking cycle. The job is not yet done. Um, uh, inflation is still at elevated levels. Uh, it has come down uh, towards the midpoint of our inflation uh, target range. Our baseline is that um, inflation will only really hit 4.5%, which is what we are aiming for sustainably in 2025. And uh, so uh, the job uh, is not yet done. We have had two very good uh, uh, readings of uh, the inflation print, 4.7 and 4.8. And, um, and the job on the inflation front uh, is, not yet, uh, is not yet done. Um, yes, we have been hiking interest rates from uh, November of 2021. And uh, we uh, started adjusting these things in baby steps of 25 basis points, 25 basis points. So let me go back to those inflation levels. You say 4.7. Also, the recent number came in at 4.8. Some of the upside can be explained by higher housing and utility price inflation. Is that a concern for you then? Do you think that those elements can continue to be inflationary? Not so much uh, housing, uh, but utility uh, prices definitely. And the uh, point that the central bank has been making had been that these are the prices that are set by government and agencies, uh, mainly uh, local government. And, uh, uh, and in a way, government and these other agencies could actually contribute to the disinflationary process by uh, setting prices, price increases at the rate at which they are consistent with the inflation target of the central bank. 
So that was part of my conversation with the South African Reserve Bank governor, uh, talking specifically about what he was going to do in South Africa. But later on in the conversation as well, he did make some very interesting comments with respect to global central banking. And I, I just want to repeat a line because I think it is relevant to the discussion you guys were having. It's not that central banks have just wanted to keep rates higher for longer. Inflation has turned out to be more persistent than many of us in the central banking community thought it was going to be. And therein lies the crux of the problem. And that is why central banks have had to be so aggressive with rate hikes, uh, because they had underestimated, really, how sticky inflation was going to be. It is as simple as that. <laughs> yeah, and so many interesting conversations happening here. I think we both share this passion for uh, central bank policy, and we'll be speaking to a lot of central bankers throughout the week. We'll have plenty more from Marrakesh throughout this morning as well, with interviews from Portugal central bank governor Mario Centeno, Korea's central bank governor uh, as well, and the IMF's Gita Gopina. So stay tuned for all of that. Um. I, I love your conversation and, and, and it stimulates my own thoughts. And, and I'm just going to come back at you. You won't get a chance to come back at me, but maybe you order later. Like, I don't think it is as simple as that. Um, and I don't think either of you think it is either. And I think those comments from the South African central banker are spot on. My problem is if they've underestimated how sticky inflation can be, have they also underestimated how much damage has been done by the rates they've created and the cumulative and lagged effects of that because they don't know how long they're going to have to keep them higher for longer and the damage yeah. they've done. We'll leave it there because we can go around in circles on this one because we can also argue that they don't know that they've done enough. But um, my, my point is the same. We're all in a little bit of this strange, foggy, opaque world. But you two are doing a sterling job, a really good job every day. I know you've got loads of interviews. I'm thoroughly looking forward to seeing them later. Thank you. Let us move back to uh, the, the devastating uh, story coming out of the Middle East at the moment. The death toll from the Israel-Hamas war has risen to more than 2,100 people. An Israeli military spokesperson confirmed 1,200 deaths, whilst the Palestinian health ministry says over 900 people have died in the Gaza Strip and the West Bank. Israeli forces are preparing for a ground offensive, with the country's air force striking hundreds of targets in the Gaza Strip overnight. The defence minister says forces are on the offensive, adding that what was in Gaza will no longer be. The US President Joe Biden has thrown his full support behind Israel, describing Hamas's assault as an act of terrorism akin to the worst rampages of ISIS. There are moments in this life, and I mean this literally, when the pure, unadulterated evil is unleashed on this world. The people of Israel lived through one such moment this weekend. The bloody hands of the terrorist organization Hamas, a group whose stated purpose for being is to kill Jews. This was an act of sheer evil. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken will arrive in Israel tomorrow for talks with senior leaders. A State Department spokesperson said Blinken would look to support the country in its fight against Hamas. Uh, the Israeli Defense Force has confirmed that a plane with arms from the U.S. has arrived, with the IDF saying support is designed to facilitate significant military operations. Coming up on the show, profits plunge at Samsung Electronics, but there's optimism the chip dip could be at the bottom. We'll discuss more with Sherry after the break. Also on the show today, the shine comes off LVMH as the post-pandemic splurge on luxury goods cools amid high inflationary pressures 
Charlotte joins us later in the show. And don't miss our interview with the CEO of DHL Group and member of CNBC's ESG Council, Tobias Meyer. We'll be speaking to him at 8.30 CT. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. So look at that. We've got the Hong Kong market leading the way uh, across Asian and Australasian indices, 1.7% higher. Uh, Samsung Electronics operating profit is expected to have fallen 78% on the year in the third quarter, with memory chip prices potentially having bottomed out. Uh, the company guidance is better than expected, with revenue forecast to fall around 13%. But let's get to Sherry. Uh, Sherry, um, some of the numbers are quite horrendous, but they're less horrendous than feared as well. So I guess there's two parts to this. Which, I mean, you'll go through this. But it, one part, of course, numbers not as bad as feared. Second part, a lot of hope and optimism in this industry that they can bridge the gap between them and the likes of Hynix and the likes of NVIDIA. Good day to you. That's right. And of course, uh, good morning, Steve. And it was a bit delayed. And late last year, you know, the stock market was really getting excited when it comes to the semiconductor space, especially. And uh, things are going to get better, start to get better in the second half of 2023. That's not exactly the case, but we are in that mode once again, betting on this recovery. Now, the market consensus seems to be that there will be earnings recovery starting from the current quarter that we are in now. Q4 of 2023, although uh, one guest from Daiwa Capital's market uh, this morning was talking about how he expects this meaningful price recovery when it comes to memory chips is starting in the second quarter of next year. But yes, despite that delay, we are talking about less horrendous numbers. When we're talking about 78% of annual decline when it comes to its operating profit, Earlier this year, we were talking about more than 90% of annual decline when it comes to its bottom line. So once again, less horrendous. And then there are opportunities when it comes to uh, AI. And this is exactly what really excited a lot of people in the market as well. But we're not just talking about uh, supplying to NVIDIA, although that is really the big part of it, of course. Recent reports out of Taiwan suggesting that Samsung is planning to ramp up uh, capacity, increase capacity when it comes to uh, these products uh, such as uh, DDR5s. These are relatively new stuff, so we don't have a lot of inventory out in the market. So I think two things, less horrendous numbers when it comes to its bottom line and AI opportunities for Samsung Electronics and others in the industry. Guys? Let me ask you, Sherry, about the mobile phones. Uh, we saw some pretty flashy devices coming out in the quarter, what the foldable phones. What's the word from the company about how that's tracking and connecting with customers at this point? 
You know, that's exactly one of the uh, factors that, that could have led to this slight beat when it comes to the third quarter earnings guidance. Because of Galaxy's flagship smartphones recently launched in the market, and then let's not forget about its competitor, Apple's iPhones and Samsung's got uh, some display supply deals for Apple as well. So those two sectors uh, seem to be uh, giving some positive uh, recovery to the third quarter numbers, although we're going to get the full earnings breakdown as well as uh, the earnings call towards the end of this month. And I think when it comes to the mobile sector specifically, the expectations were quite low inflation, macro recession, recessionary worries, and so on. And the company has been quite conservative when it comes to the mobile units and when it comes to uh, their outlook into the second half of this year. So I think that is what's happening here. The market sort of correcting, uh, adjusting its expectations for the mobile segment. And we've got, of course, Q4, usually strong season. I think that is a definitely to watch out for in terms of really gauging where consumers stand, especially in the mobile market. Guys? Thank you very much for that, Sherry. Let's push on to LVMH. Sales slowed in the third quarter as post-pandemic spending eased amid rising inflationary pressures. Charlotte joins us with more. Just going over some of the numbers, well down on the same time last year. I've got to say, huge amount of slippage. But the other breaking news for me was that they acquired Chateau Minuti at some point over the quarter. <laughs> well, look, to be fair to LVMH, the comparables were always going to be tough because it was the best quarter in China last year, while the demand was still very strong in the US and in Europe. So we expected to see a moderation. Certainly, we see that the post-pandemic euphoria is well over when it comes to luxury and so they missed expectations slightly there at LVMH. Of course a lot of analysts are going to watch because LVMH, the largest luxury group in the world, always considered the bellwether of the sector and the first one to report in this earnings season. So fashion and leather, that means the lion's share of the organic sales, they're up 9%. So we certainly see the sales growth slowing there. Fashion and leather up 9%, watches and jewelry up 3%. And looking at the region, really, we see that in the US there is still being tough there. Remember in Q2 sales were down in the US. Now they're up 2%. So a little bit of recovery but still uh, we see that the demand is still weaker there. And that's impacted sales of cognac in particular. Uh, again in watches and jewelry, Bulgari performed better than Tiffany's because of that US exposure that Tiffany's has while Bulgari is more exposed to China. Europe a little bit more resilient. Their sales were up 7% and in Asia excluding Japan up 11%. So overall there we see of course a slow down compared to the first half. Now it's too early, they said for Asia in particular, too early to know the impact for the golden week uh, just yet. But we see selective retailing as one of, the, of their branches that did the best with Sephora and DFS, the recovery of travel helping them on that front. So we hear from a lot of analysts that talk about normalization, consolidation. Yesterday the CFO talking about how now we're getting closer to his, historic averages in their sales and in their growth there compared to the past week. Of course, the post-pandemic euphoria was hitting there. So we saw all these price targets revision of course, we saw all these luxury stock, uh, stocks uh, lower. 175 billions were knocked off those luxury stocks since uh, March. But uh, VMH, one of those that is still up 8% on the year, and one of the stocks that is still considered a buy when overweight and outperform on the sector overall. But certainly, the message that those sales from LVMH gives uh, will 
ring some alarm bells for some of the other luxury stocks for sure. I sort of pick up on my throwaway remark around Chateau Minuti. So it was a purchase back in February, but a majority stake. And this comes on the back of other stakes that it's purchased in the rosé space. And to me, they own now a lot of the big brands. Chateau Minuti, obviously, clearly one of the big favourites out of the French stable. But there's Whispering Angel too. And what the uh, company's done is gone in, buys the stakes, works with the company to try and double the sales or improve some of the distribution. It seems to me it's diversifying away from just cognac and champagne. So in the, the wine and spirits business, this is quite key. It's a growing category. Can I just jump in there as well? I, I, I bow to you on all things alcoholic. Especially um, rosé. Not, not because you drink vast quantities, but because when you do drink, you, the you, and you drink categories. absolute quality, whereas right. I'm more of a, dare I say, a bog-standard kind of chap. Um, but, but, but even I know that Whispering Angel is... It's just a rosé. It's uh, it, well, certainly one of their most popular brands, and it, it's a decent rosé. Mm -hmm. But it's not top end expensive as well, and I think that's very but interesting. That's just a rosé category in general. For it's sure. not that expensive, right? For sure, it's but then that's fashionable at the moment. Mm. Everybody's celebrities. Everybody's buying to the rosé. This is sector. exactly my point. So they've gone for something that isn't traditionally, if I dare, dare I say, it, LVMH core stable unbelievably expensive, top end as well. So they yeah, are- like champagne, for instance. Like some of their champagnes, like, like, like well, exactly, like Moe Hennessy. But it's just interesting that it's actually kind of a more of a, a I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of like a mid-market product rather than the top end. Yeah, it's a so margin strength of LVMH that they, they've reached out to the aspirational shopper, but they right. reached out to the high end as well. And that's why they're certainly a bit more resilient than some other luxury groups that rely on just one or two brands, because they are reaching out to all the consumers, the whole spectrum. To but that's extent. an interesting strategy, isn't it? Because what we've seen many times with when, uh, for instance, Gucci in the past or Burberry in the past has gone down the price end too much. Mm -hmm. It hasn't reflected well on the brand. And actually, they've, they've scurried back to their, their core area of making things more expensive as well, a lot of these. I mean, you'd never see Hermes, for instance, go to like the mid-market, would you? They like to keep no. the, 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 the higher end as, as their, basically their core But, but keep product. in mind, the rosé is really traded in a very tight range. So if you think at the lower end of the category, say roughly £10, the higher end of the category, the I Shadow the lower Minuti, end of the category, dare I say, it might be about fiver rather well, than £10. The, well, there you, you go, right. But then the high end, if you talk about, say, the Shadow Minuti, you can probably buy that for close to, to £30 or just under. You mm. can get it cheaper, of course, in France. But that just tells you it's still a fairly tight range for a product category. But what they've managed to do there is stretch out some of the pricing. Some of the other things they've purchased in recent times, I mean, I've seen one of the larger bottles go for closer to 100 for instance. Right. So it's stretched out the category, and that is a margin story, right, where you pick up a cheaper category and you premiumize the category, and that is, of course, a word we've heard all across the liquor space, premiumization. No, and the question of staying aspirational, you know, they were asked about that yesterday and they said a brand like Dior that's done extremely well for them, the second biggest after uh, Vuitton, so they tripled their sales in the past three what years the in Dior. Oh, Dior, of course. So yes. they tripled their sales in the past three years and they say they are slowing down the amount of shops that they're opening, et cetera, et cetera, to stay aspirational. So, you know, it's trying to maintain that capacity of keep on selling while staying aspirational. And I'll just and say that the stock trades on 21 times forward, which is a premium to the broader sector, not as high as the 25 times they were trading at their peak um, before COVID as well. Stock is up 8% um, year to date. Um, trades on a mean EPS estimate for the full year of 32.5. So just to give a few of the numbers there. And as you can see, um, the stock trading at 733 euros. Thank you, Charlotte. Um, and, and thank you for always for educating me and the audience about <laughs> where our aspirational wine drinking so, should so be. Some rosé uh, knowledge.
Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.